What is happening? Thank you. Thank you. Now listen. Now listen. I just want to say, I just want to say, it's not appropriate that you stand. I want you to know that. But it's also not you, not appropriate that you sit down that quickly. What's wrong with you? You know what? I, I um, it's so good to be friends uh, with, with Rob McCoy and to, to meet heroes like Rob McCoy. But, you know, then when I hear him confess he hasn't read all my books, I'm like, ah, wait a minute. Hold on a second. But, you know, what? I shouldn't joke around. I, I don't care if you read my books as long as you purchase copies of my books. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's all about paying the rent. I got to pay the rent. We don't own. We live in New York. Okay. All our extra money goes to the garage fees. It's very tough. Um, you know, I joke around, but this is true. I was just telling Rob uh, backstage, I got to go to the bathroom so bad. I'm going to speak for five minutes. Is that okay, Rob? Just kidding. No, what I told, <laughs> I think I took way too much Adderall. And did I tell you I shotgun a beer in the green room? Yeah, yeah, just to kind of mellow me out from the Adderall, I shotgun a beer, and I don't know. This is the, uh, the earlier crowd was more religious. They left when I said that. Yeah. Don't ever come to the 9 o'clock. It's a bunch of Pharisees. Um, a number of them were dressed as Calvin, with the, kind of the, with the black, with the pinched black hat. They looked very dour. Yeah, that's 9 o'clock service for you. Thank you for being free. Thank you. Uh, so... You know I'm going to make fun of you at the 1 o'clock service. You know that, right? The w <laughs> but I was saying, joking, joking around, right, that uh, we're all going through something, right? We're all paying a price. If you stand for freedom, you pay a price. And I want you to understand, praise God for that. Pray, what a joy that you get to pay some price. I was totally wiped off of YouTube, took a big financial hit. But I'm thinking, w what would be worse, like being applauded by the people who are, you know, applying Marxist standards to America today. I, I, I think we need to understand that we're in a moment where we need to rejoice that we get to live during a time like this and that we get to, you're, you're going to tell your kids stories, your grandkids stories. Like, yeah, I literally lost my job because I refused, you know, to let them whatever. And, and I think like, that's a beautiful thing, and it gets us to see, do we really trust God? Because, look, a lot of Christians don't. I'm, I'm going to be honest, right? They say, I believe this, and I believe this. But it's, it's kind of like, have you all heard that, um, the, the story of, uh, like, the, the, this, this never happened. But, like, you know, somebody, somebody put a, uh, uh, a tightrope over Niagara Falls, right? I think something like this happened. I, can't remember, I just don't remember the details. But uh, the guy says, like, do you believe that uh, I can push this wheelbarrow across the, the tightrope across the falls. And everybody's like, yes, 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 yes. And he says, the guy in the front row, you believe? Yes. And he says, get in the barrel. <laughs> Do we believe what Jesus says? Do we believe he defeated death on the cross? We go, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, just read the, you know, I go to church at this place. Just read the website. That there's a statement of faith. I believe that. For most people, that's just a fig leaf. God knows if you really believe and it will be evident in how you behave. If you really want to know what somebody believes, do they, you know, do they stand when everybody else is saying, I'm not ready to stand, I'm not ready to And so if you've read my Bonhoeffer book, you're familiar with the story, you understand that a lot of good people, when push comes to shove, you find out they didn't really believe. They were willing to go along, right, 
because they thought, this is just going to last for a little while. I don't need to, like, declare myself a maniac. I'm just going to go with the program. I'm going get to the, get the jab, get the job, get the thing. You know, like, everything's cool. But we're living in a time where we're being forced uh, to choose. We're being forced to say, do I really believe that God is in control of my finances? Do I really believe that he cares about the minutiae? Of, of my life, that if I make a sacrifice, that he's with me? And, and do I really believe that he defeated death on the cross so that if I go to the gallows for what I believe, I don't care because I'm going straight into real life in heaven, which is the greatest thing imaginable. Like, God wants us to believe that, folks. And the reason he wants us to believe that is because he loves us. He loves us. When the scripture says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. He's not saying that to make life tough. He's saying that to make life easy. He's telling you, I love you. I don't want you to worry. It's natural for you to worry. It's natural for you to go to hell. I love you. And I'm telling you, you can trust me. Take your problems to me. Trust me utterly. Um, now, Oftentimes, God gives us a lot of information and proof of his existence. Uh, the Word of God is one of those things. Uh, so today I want to talk to you about my book, which is called Is Atheism Dead? The reason I, I have given it that title is because I came upon genuinely astonishing evidence for God. So astonishing that I said, I've got to put this in a book. This is nuts. Because when you discover stuff that's really astonishing... Part of the astonishment, or maybe it's like a second astonishment, is you say, this is really astonishing, but n nobody knows this. Why does nobody know this? Now, if you're dealing with the craziness of what we're living through now, you begin to get that dynamic, right? That, that just because something's true doesn't mean people know it's true, doesn't mean people are willing to talk about it, right? And we've been living on a milder level with that uh, in the secular culture, roughly since Darwin, right? We've all bought this idea that, you know, eh, religion is kind of being pushed out by science. And even if you believe in Jesus, most of us have still kind of internalized that, that, uh, that narrative, right? So in 1966, uh, the narrative comes from the level of, like, the intellectuals and, and whatever and comes right into America's living, room, living rooms when Time magazine publishes a cover article that says, Is God Dead? It's kind of a chilling thing, Right? But it came right into the middle of America's living rooms because a lot of the intellectuals, who we now know are mo mostly very stupid, but we can't say that in a church. That would be disrespectful. So you edit that out in post, okay? But the point is that you start realizing somebody said, I don't remember who said it, that some things are so dumb that it takes an intellectual to believe them, right? And part of that is because you see this, you know, with, with, with kind of the populism and Trump and everything. You start realizing, like, Common sense, if you work a job, raise kids, you're kind of forced to have common sense, right? If you run a business, whatever. If you don't, if you're some kind of intellectual, you live in a bubble, you know, you're a community organizer, you think of any of these crazy titles, you're not really forced to deal with reality. So it's easy to have crazy ideas. But in 1966, when this idea that Science is pushing God out. It came right into the middle of America's living's, living rooms. And a lot of us kind of bought that idea. Even good people kind of like, yeah, maybe, maybe there's religious truth and scientific truth and whatever. And I 
over the years have read a lot of books and things about, you know, science and faith and, and whatever. And I know that's, that's not true, that, that truth is truth. Jesus is truth. Truth is truth. There's no Christian truth and scientific truth. There's only truth, right? And there's only, there's only history. There's no Christian history. And I, there's facts and lies, you know? So basically, I realized uh, right at the beginning of COVID, I got two kind of pieces of evidence that were so amazing, which I'll talk about that I said, I, I need to write a book because most people that I know, who, even who are devout Christians, who read a lot of stuff, they don't even know about this. And I didn't know about this. And we need to understand the evidence for God is increasing. It's kind of a weird thing. It's the antithesis of the narrative that we've been hearing all our lives, that the more science learns, the less we need religion, right? Well, irony of ironies, literally the opposite is true. The more that science has been learning, roughly since 1966, it seems like that's when this kind of shift began to happen, ironically and hilariously, the more science learns, the more it makes it impossible to believe that the universe and the earth and life came into existence randomly by like natural forces. So I'll talk a little bit about that. So I thought I got to write a book that kind of talks about these two big pieces of information, which I'll touch on and all this other information which has been piling up and up and up and up and up and up. And I thought, if the question in 1966 was, is God dead? The question today has to be, is atheism dead? Uh, and I actually believe that it is. In other words, you can still be an atheist just like you can be a flat earther. But the point is that if you're really intellectually honest, you have to say, I'm an agnostic. And I think a lot of people who call themselves atheists are going to have to deal with this, that atheism is no longer intellectually tenable. Uh, and a lot of people are going to get very angry, but I'm not responsible for your thought life. What can I tell you? The facts are the facts. So, um, so the, the, the two pieces of information that came to me uh, in the last, like, three years, I, I, you know, a lot of us would think it's coincidence, but I realize God uh, often steers our lives rather dramatically. And I met two people, uh, one in Albuquerque and one in uh, Houston, that it, it seemed like a random meeting, but each of them had a huge piece of information that I realized nobody knows about this. And I was so I was thrilled to meet them. One, uh, the guy that I met in Albuquerque was Dr. Stephen Collins, who I was preaching at Skip Heitzig's church. Some of you know Skip uh, Heitzig. And it was like Saturday, and he was like, oh, you got the day free? You should check out, you know, Stephen Collins has a little biblical archaeology museum here, or whatever. And I was like, I'm in Albuquerque. What, what, do you, what do you mean a biblical archaeology museum? What, what are you talking about? Um, well, I meet Dr. Stephen Collins, and Dr. Uh, and, and Skip Heisig says, oh, and by the way, he discovered biblical Sodom. And you think, what? You know, most people joke around like, oh, yeah, like Las Vegas? What do you mean? No. This is when you hear as a Christian, sometimes you hear somebody say something like, uh, oh, so-and-so discovered Noah's Ark, or so-and-so discovered... I think you need to bring healthy skepticism to it because a lot of people say a lot of stuff and Christians often, what's a polite word? Lie, right? Yes. There were 4,000 people at the, at the, uh, at the 11 o'clock service, 4,000, you know, like they'll say whatever and it's like, well, I'm lying, you know, for God's purposes, you know. Yeah, you can't do that. It's called lying. And, but the point is that people will do that because they, they're like, you know, rah, rah for God. So when I heard that he discovered biblical Sodom, I'm thinking, wait a minute. 
Sodom, first of all, I don't know that we could ever discover it, okay? If, if it was obliterated, as it says in the scripture, why would we think we could discover it, number one? Number two, it's in the first couple of pages of this huge book called the Bible. This is like as mythic as it gets. This is like three steps, you know, from, from uh, the Tower of Babel and, and, and uh, Genesis. I mean, wow, this guy discovered, but, so I looked into it, and the story is astonishing, and I'll tell you that in a minute. Then I met a guy named Dr. James Tour in Houston. Similar kind of thing, like I wasn't, he wasn't on my radar. And I start talking to him. He is at the University of, uh, at Rice University in Houston. And he's probably one of the top scientists on planet Earth. And those are the only scientists that I know, terrestrial scientists, okay? And this guy probably knows more about the nano level, about how to create molecules in the lab than anybody in the world. And he's humble, so he doesn't say, I know more than anybody in the world, but he probably does, right? He created, just to show you how, like, freaky smart he is, and he's also a, an on-fire Jewish believer in Jesus, like, insanely on fire, okay? But this super genius is such a genius that in, like, 2005, almost to show off, he created molecules. Now, remember, single molecules, okay, that... Each molecule is a car. It's like it, it has, uh, uh, you know, rudimentary uh, chassis, uh, a axles, wheels that roll. Like, the whole thing is one molecule. Uh, and it has some kind of an engine that makes it go, don't ask me. This is not like, you know, uh, a, a combustion engine. We're talking about a molecular level. But th th there was so much written about this that it was the most... Uh, research or the most read, accessed, peer-reviewed scientific article of the year in 2006, whatever it was, okay? And to show you how small these molecular cars are that actually function as cars that can roll, 50,000 of them parked side by side would be the width of a human hair. Are you impressed? You know how wide a hair is? It's kind of 50,000, right? So this guy knows more about that level than anybody else. And he tells me when we met that what science calls abiogenesis. Now, I love the fact that a lot of people, you haven't even thought of this ever since maybe it was on the test in high school or junior high. But a lot of times we argue about, like, evolution or what, okay? Put that to the side. Evolution, if it is real, the theory requires life. You, you understand that, right? That's something, you have life and it evolves to this and to this and to this and to this. What about before the theory of evolution? Where did life come from before it could evolve? Because you need life if you're talking about evolution, right? What about that first life? Scientists say, if you ask a scientist, they would say, yeah, four billion years ago on the surface of planet Earth, we know for a fact that uh, single-celled life uh, emerged for the first time. The simplest, simplest, it's so simple, right? Except it's not that simple. It's life. But they say four billion years ago. So you say, okay, great. How did that happen? No one knows. Do you know? Like, what could be a more basic question for science to answer? Okay? What would be a more basic question than, okay, we're on a planet. There's all different kinds of life. The first life emerged single cell four billion years ago. How did that happen? No one knows. But... If you were in school in the 70s, when I was in school, it was on the test. And they said, here's how it emerged. In 1952, 
there was a famous experiment in the University of Chicago, and uh, two guys, Miller and Urey, ran uh, electricity through some kind of solution that they figured was roughly what was existing on planet Earth four billion, four billion years ago with no life, and the electricity catalyzed and created some amino acids, right? And they were like, amino acids, we're on our way. We're gonna have life any minute, right? Now, if you know anything about science, and I don't really, but the point is I know enough to tell you that amino acids are as far from a single cell of life as like we are from Alpha Centauri. Like there's no, there's no, that, that's a, a star. It's uh, the closest star next to like the sun. Okay, so, but I mean, you start realizing that they were so naive 70 years ago when they discovered that they could create amino acids like this that they thought it's just a matter of time. The narrative is science is showing us everything. We don't need God and we've already created amino acids and before you know it, we're gonna get amino acids to, to make proteins and we're, then we're gonna get you know this and this and this and this and then before you know it, we're gonna show how it's possible given like infinite time, I guess, I don't know, for single cells to just emerge. But the more science progressed over the last 70 years, the opposite happened. Again, remember the narrative, right? Time Magazine kind of suggests like science is pushing God and religion out of the picture. The opposite happened. The more science learned, the more we learned that, hey, for example, that single cell that you thought could emerge like no problem out of the sloshing of the prebiotic soup, here's a problem. There's a thing we've discovered called DNA. The coding involved in that life is so complex, it will make your head spin around and pop off. Like, don't even think about it. It'll never happen. It's so complex. And somebody said it's kind of like suggesting that a tornado could go through a junkyard and create a 747, right? With, you know, uh, food trays and seatbelts, right? Like, the more you know about how complex a single cell is, the more you know this never happened. But think of the naivete in 1952-53, they were like, we're on our way and it's a matter of time. So when I met Jim Tour, he says to me, Eric, it's been seven decades. They haven't moved that ball forward a millimeter. In fact, the more science has learned, the more they know that the ball has moved backwards. It's kind of like you're aiming at a target, you're like, I'm getting better and better at aiming, I'm gonna hit the target, I'm gonna hit the target. But while you're doing that, the target flies to the other side of the universe. You're never gonna hit the target. I mean, and literally, that's, that's about the level you're talking about. So have you noticed that scientists or materialists or atheists, they're willing to argue about evolution, but you don't hear a peep about this idea of like, where did life originate? Like the first life, before evolution is possible, where did it come from? Crickets, right? Well. When Jim Tour explains this to me, and he's angry, he's like, I, you can't fool me. I mean, if you ask Richard Dawkins or some atheist or whatever, they'll say, oh, we're working on it. He's like, yeah, you're working on it, and you're getting nowhere, and you're lying, and I know, and you're spending billions of dollars of funding on this, and you're never, ever going to get there, and we need to pull the funding, and let's be honest about this. But if you're a scientist who's put your whole life into, like, the narrative of science pushing religion out, who's going to raise his hand and say, well, in seven decades, as science has gotten better and better, we've learned more and more that we know nothing. So when I met Jim Tour, and when I met the man who discovered biblical Sodom, I thought, these are two pieces of, of information 
that are dramatic and nobody knows about them. I mean, the more you know about either of these things, the more amazed you are. And then you're amazed that nobody's heard of this. Now, why have we not heard of this? Because there's a narrative in the culture that we kind of solved this problem. Religion is being pushed out by science. So even if we get pieces of evidence, we're not really, really, you know, going to take it too seriously. Okay. Uh, we've, we've known this uh, f forever. We've, we've known this forever. Um, except it's not true. Is Massimo here? Anybody here named Massimo? Hey, there was a guy named Massimo supposed to show up. I'm looking for Massimo. I told him if he showed up, I'd talk about Galileo. Because actually, this is kind of funny. This is true. Ma Massimo has an Italian restaurant. It's around here. What's it called? Yes. Yes, I was going to... If Massimo was here, I was going to tell you, you really need to go to that restaurant. And I'm going to tell you, don't ever eat at Massimo's restaurant. I ate there last night. The food was great. Massimo's great. But, all right, I take it back. It was, the whole thing was awesome. Go to Massimo's restaurant. He's a hero, by the way. But I said to him last night, I, I'm going to talk about Galileo because Galileo figures into this. Where do we get this idea that science is at odds with religion, right? Well, a lot of times lies and myths evolve kind of backwards. Like it kind of comes from Darwin and it makes its way down. But in the course of like the last, I don't know, 150 years, we came up with the found, what I call in the book the founding myth of atheism. The founding myth of atheism is that the proud scientist, Galileo Galilei, stood against the church. And that's the whole thing is nonsense. Galileo was a profound Christian. He was more Christian than the people in the church persecuting him, okay? He was so sure that the Bible is true that it didn't even occur to him that science could point away from the Bible. Truth is truth. If the Bible is true and what I discover with my telescope is true, they're, they're going to help each other. They're not going to work against each other. But we bought that lie in the last 150 years ago that, oh yeah, since Galileo, there's been this war between science and religion. Well, I'm here to tell you a couple of things in this mixed up narrative. Number one, not only is faith not at odds with science, but as I said, in the last 50 or so years, ironically, science is more and more giving us evidence that there's not the ghost of a chance that the universe, the earth, or life could emerge randomly as we've been told. Science is proving that point. So that if today you say you're, you're an atheist, I just want to say to you, I don't think you are. I think maybe you're an agnostic, but it's no longer possible because of science to be a real atheist. It doesn't make sense, okay? But that meant... So... So... But the Galileo narrative kind of becomes this story like we all believe, like, yes, at the dawn of the uh, scientific revolution, that's when reason took over and the Enlightenment took over and it began to push faith out, right? Folks, that's total nonsense, okay? Not only is science pointing to God, but as I did my research, I realized, oh my goodness, science itself Far from just simply being compatible with faith, it is Christian faith. Now, this is historical fact. This is not Christian fact, okay? Science came into being, and the scientific revolution came into being, and modern science came into being because of Christian faith. 
Now, you can read that part of my book. I'm not going to give you the details. But the point is, that's a historical fact. Non-scientists say this, that it was a certain conditions of the way Christians think. And because of original sin, you know, we don't trust ourselves, so we have to check things. And there's all this stuff that makes sense that all these great civilizations didn't come up with a scientific revolution. But in Western Christendom, science emerged. So this lie that we keep buying into, many of us have bought into it, right? That science and faith, they're, you know... No, it's, it's, not, it's not true. And John Lennox, whom I quote so much in the book that I should really give him a couple of bucks, um, he says, it is atheism that is incompatible with science. So I said, I need to write a book, and the title needs to be not, is God dead, but is atheism dead? That's really the question uh, today. And I came up with so much information. Now, I mentioned the science part. I mentioned James Tour. When I understood... What he explained to me, I said, I got to write about that. People need to know that the question that nobody's been asking for 70 years, it's time to call the bet, okay? Do you guys believe in gambling? Is that cool? Yeah. It's time to call the bet. We need to say, hey, what do you have? It's been 70 years. That's uh, seven decades, kind of a long time. Uh, what do you think? Can we talk about this issue now? Can we say that science knows nothing? Do you dare to say that? I mean, Christopher Dawkins literally said, like, oh, we're working on that. Yeah, you're working on it. I know, you're working on it, but let's be honest, okay? The evidence from science is overwhelming. Uh, I talk about the fine-tuned universe. That's the second piece. So the first part of the book is all science. second part of the book is archaeological evidence and the discovery of biblical Sodom. And the third part of the book, I deal with atheism itself. But I want to say that the Big Bang, uh, I also talk about the Big Bang, which is its own world. I won't get into it. But we forget how disturbing it was to atheists when it was discovered that the universe began 13.8 billion years ago in the Big Bang, most atheist scientists were very troubled by this. And you know who one of those scientists was? Albert Einstein. Have you heard of him? Pretty famous scientist. If you haven't heard of him, get out. <laughs> Go read a book. You don't need to be here. Um, so Einstein... In 1911, to show you how insecure most people are, right? When you wonder why people don't stand up to the vaccine mandates or why people don't, why people kind of want to go with the flow, they want their colleagues to like them, right? That's human nature. And if you need proof of that, you look at Einstein, okay? You think, like, there's nobody more intellectually secure than Einstein in the world of science. In 1911, he came up with his equations, which seemed to indicate that the universe is expanding. And he thought, uh-oh, that's not good. Because if the universe is expanding, it means that it expanded from a point, which implies there was a point at which it did not exist, which implies it was created. That's Max of religion. And as a dedicated scientist, that's going to make me look bad among my colleagues. Because everybody believes now, you know, in the scientific world, in 1911, from 1859 until the present, until 1911, they all kind of bought into this in the scientific world that we can show everything without God. So Einstein, the great Einstein, has a moment of insecurity and says, this is going to be embarrassing to me. You know, I'm not that famous yet. It's only 1911. Uh, if I want to make a name for myself, I don't want people to think I'm pointing to, like, religion. So he creates what he calls the cosmological constant, fudge factor, to kind of zero out the implication that the universe is expanding. Einstein did that, okay? That's like, you know, getting, getting the booster. It's very, it's pathetic. 
I... Yeah, I thought I would sprinkle Vax humor in the sermon. So, so Einstein creates this cosmological constant. Meanwhile, other scientists, great scientists, like the uh, Jewish, uh, Russian-Jewish guy named Friedman, the uh, Belgian Catholic priest, Lemaitre, and the American from this neck of the woods, Edwin Hubble, all say, no, Einstein, you, you're, you're wrong, meaning you were right. The universe is expanding. And in 1929, in Pasadena at a conference, he says, he admits it, and he says, this, is, this was the biggest blunder of my life. In other words, even the Big Bang, which we all now go like, well, what's the big deal? It was very threatening to people who say there's no God. And so now they've kind of accepted it. But in the first chapter of the book, I tell the story of the Big Bang, because trust me when I tell you, it points to God in ways that are very freaky if you want to believe only in science. Uh, because it, appoint, it says, via science, it points to a point where there was no science, where there were no laws of physics, where the universe didn't exist, where nothing existed. It's very, you know, if you're an insecure scientist, it's going to give you some problems. So I talk about the Big Bang. I talk about the James Tour, abiogenesis, life coming out of non-life, but I also talk about what some of you know, the fine-tuned universe. Some of you, are anybody here familiar with the, with, with the argument of the fine-tuned universe? I'm just curious. Anybody here? Okay, if you're familiar with it, you go take your cigarette break. I'll be, just give me five minutes. So, uh, so the fine-tuned universe, Christopher Hitchens, one of the new atheists that I write about at the end of the book, who are fundamentally unserious atheists, okay? If, if you're really serious about these things, uh, you know, you're not happy about the idea there's, there's no God. The serious atheists took this, they, they understood the bleakness of a world without God, and I, I respect that, okay, if you take it, if you really understand the implications. But Hitchens, in a moment, when he was, like, debating all these people, you know, 15 years ago, he was asked, hey, what is the strongest argument on the God side of the equation? And in a rare moment of candor, because he could be super nasty, but he, he actually said... Oh, it's the fine-tuned argument, without question. That's the argument that really we have to work on. That you know, he, he, he said that. Now, what is the fine-tuned argument? Now, the fine-tuned argument only comes into being, again, roughly since Time Magazine's 1966 article. The more science has discovered since the 60s, roughly, the more it has discovered things that we couldn't have discovered before. But science has gotten so advanced that we can see things that we look at it and we say, whoa. We didn't know this, but now we know that the size of the Earth, for example, if it was the tiniest bit bigger or the tiniest bit smaller, life could not exist. Did you hear that in school? That's science. That's not, you know, Sunday school. That's science. They've discovered that the Earth's size, if, if, if we didn't have the magnetosphere that we have, uh, that, that, that the atmosphere would go away and we'd be like Mars, no life, no atmosphere. If it was a little bit bigger our gravity would be stronger and it would pull down things that are currently like drifting away like ammonia or whatever it is. Either way, our Earth curiously appears to be just the right size for life. But the more science discovers, the more science discovers examples of this. And it piles up and up and up and up. And over the decades, it gets more and more disturbing because it looks... Like, there's no question that this was all designed. Every part of the universe seems perfectly calibrated. I mean, even, 
forget the earth, okay? Because you could talk about the earth all day long, this perfect, I mean, the fact that we're just breathing here, okay? We're breathing, like it's really convenient. Like it kind of works out, you know? Like we get to breathe and we didn't have to pipe in stuff so we could breathe it. It's just already here and here we are. And um, honestly, and by the way, uh, I know we're in Southern California, but even in other parts of the world, there's oxygen. Did you know that? So it's a, you got a good gig here, the temperature's good, but it's e even around the world. People can just walk outside and breathe, and it's kind of amazing. We don't even think about that. But there, so there are all these things about the Earth that are so fine-tuned. I mean, if the moon weren't exactly the size that it is, I mean, I'm, I promise you, the stuff in this book, it's going to freak you out. The stuff about the moon is freaky. I don't have time. But if the moon weren't basically exactly the size it is, and if it weren't there, life would not exist on Earth. It stabilizes uh, our, our, our tilt so that, who said that? You said that? See, people know this stuff. Some people know this stuff. Um, oh, you listen to my podcast. All right. That's almost cheating. It's almost cheating. So, yes, I have a podcast. I have a radio show. Actually, if I didn't say it, I think, I don't know if I said it in this service, last service, please go to my website, just my name, ericmetaxas.com, and sign up for the newsletter, because since I was canceled from YouTube, all of these amazing interviews I do with, really, some of the people I mentioned in the book, you know, you're not, not going to find them on YouTube. So please sign up, ericmetaxas.com, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll see. You don't want to miss this stuff. But every little thing, I mean, Jupiter, have you thought of Jupiter lately? Science now tells us that Jupiter, if it weren't there, Jupiter is so huge that its gravity pulls like 99.9% .9 of the meteors and comets, whatever, that would hit Earth are pulled away by the gravity of Jupiter. And science now tells us that if Jupiter weren't there, we couldn't be here because you'd be looking up every second, like, boom, 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 like they'd be hitting us. I mean, actually, we wouldn't even be here because life wouldn't have even come into being. That's science, folks. Science is now telling us that, oh, yeah, it just so happens that if it weren't for Jupiter, which, which if you even know where to look in the night sky, it's like a tiny pinprick. If it weren't for that being there, we're not here. And it adds up and up and up and up. The evidence adds up and up and up and up. So we're at a point where every day that passes, there's more scientific evidence that things are designed so perfectly that it'll stop your heart. You, you, you can't even believe it. Now, that's just Earth. And we talked about life. What about the universe? Science now can tell us that, oh, yeah, 13.8 billion years ago when the Big Bang happened, within a millionth of a second after it began, within a millionth of a second, the four fundamental forces in physics were determined with extreme precision. Now, if you don't know what they are, who cares? I could be making this up, but here's the point. The gravitational force, the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, these four fundamental forces, scientists, physicists today acknowledge that every one of these four forces were set in stone within a millionth of a second of the Big Bang and if any one of those four were slightly different, like by 0.00000001, no universe. That's what science says. Now, can you imagine trying to be a scientist who thinks like, well, it just happened. We're lucky. What are you going to say? 
That's like flipping a coin and it, and it lands heads like 40 billion times in a row. And you go, hey, it can happen. It can happen. I'm lucky. Hey, Lady Luck is on my side. It's, the, it's so irrational. Do you understand how irrational it is? So scientists who don't want to accept the design will say crazy things. And obviously, I write about this in the book. They talk about the multiverse theory. Have you heard this one? They say, well, yeah, our universe happens to be perfect, but there's probably an infinity of other universes, and we just happen to be, you know, in the good one. Like, can you imagine a scientist saying that? I can imagine an idiot saying that. A scientist saying that, and how much scientific evidence do we have for the multiverse theory? Zero. We're supposed to be about evidence, right? So it goes on and on and on and on. Science pointing to God at, for such a time as this, folks, because I really believe as, as the world goes crazy, as, I mean, we, we know the scripture, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against them, a standard, a battle flag. And this is part of that. Why did the Lord wait till now? Why did he, he's kind of like, yeah, let him have science. And they'll get very puffed up for a few decades. But then they'll really get to the, what science can do, and they'll start feeling kind of insecure because it'll show that none of this could be here without a designer. Now, I didn't mention the archaeology. So, so this evidence is so crazy. And again, I'm, I'm barely touching on it. The chapter on water is itself mind-blowing. I'm tempted to talk for four hours, but I can't do that. So um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's exciting stuff that God has allowed us to know this. So the archaeology stuff, I mentioned biblical Sodom, and I don't really have time to go into the details of that. But when I tell you that when I realized this is real, I said, how come we don't all know this? That something that happened 1700 B.C., 1700 B.C., that long ago, Science and archaeology are proving it. And when I say proving it, I mean, I'm not exaggerating, okay? Again, I write about it in the book, and you can research it yourself. It's crazy stuff. There's other hilarious stories. I said, let me write about other archaeological stories. Three of the stories, this is really weird, involve poorly behaved boys. Like three of the greatest archaeological discoveries proving the Bible happen to involve ill-behaved 12-year-olds and 15-year-olds. Two 12-year-olds and a 15-year-old, okay? The, 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 uh, the, <laughs> the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is like the most amazing archaeological discovery ever, literally, I think that's true, was discovered by a 12-year-old shepherd boy running after a, a goat. Like his parents would have murdered him if they said, oh, oh, you risked your life for a goat? Like we could mind losing a goat, but you're like climbing on cliffs where nobody has been for like 500 years, and then you find a cave, and then you go into the cave. What is wrong with you? <laughs> well, lucky for him, he discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that 2,000 plus years ago, the scriptures of the Old Testament were not changed by a letter from what we have today. How many centuries have you heard people say, oh, in the Middle Ages, the monks changed everything? Nice idea, except we now know as of the discovery in 1947 by the, by the ill-behaved shepherd boy that that's not true. That the words of Isaiah and the Psalms and all those things and all those messianic predictions existed in those jars quietly for over 2,000 years. Uh, there's another... 
there's another story. I mean, these stories are very funny. I wish I could tell you. In the next service, I'll tell one or two of these so- stories. But because they are, they're hilarious. Uh, the, the, there was a kid who, dis- who discovered Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, which if you read the scripture again, there's this little mention of how when Zennacherib is besieging, it's, he's threatening to besiege Jerusalem, and King Hezekiah, sharp dude, one of the good kings, says, hey, we need to uh, protect ourselves. So they build all these, you know, they, the fortifications and whatever, but he goes, aha, here's what we're also going to do. We are going to divert the water supply in Jerusalem so that it stays in Jerusalem so that the besieging armies of the Assyrians, they're not going to have water. Now, in order to pull this off, they had to dig an unbelievable tunnel. Like, this is an engineering feat. Um, Centuries before Christ. And it's just like mentioned in the scripture very obliquely. Well, that was discovered in 1879, 1880, I can't remember, by a 15-year-old boy playing hooky. Right? Like another kid, like, you really better go to school. I'll kill you if I find out you're playing hooky again. Well, it's like, yeah, but I discovered his guy's tunnel. What are you going to do? You're going to punish me? I'm making you famous, all right? So back off, pops. So the third, the third story is, is even wilder. Uh, the, the, the short version is that in 1979, there were some caves being uh, excavated outside of Jerusalem, and there was a, a young archaeologist who was so you know, young, that he couldn't even get university students to help him. So he had to, like, really humble himself and let the 12- and 13-year-olds in some archaeology club be his assistants. And they were all unhelpful. And one of them named Nathan in 1979, he's probably, like, my age at this point, Nathan was so unhelpful and such a pain in the tuchus that, this is Jerusalem, so I'm saying tuchus advisedly, he was such a pain in the tuchus that that this archaeologist, Barkai, said, I cannot take this kid another second. So send him to chamber 25 to clean it out. We're going to photograph everything. We haven't discovered anything, by the way. These chambers are all empty, so I'm ticked. And this kid is getting on my nerves. Tell him, go to same chamber 25 and sweep it out and whatever. I don't want to see him for two hours. He was driving the archaeologist insane. Well, Nathan was so annoying that he goes to the cave to clean it and brings with him, what else would you bring if you want to clean a cave that's going to be uh, photographed? You bring a hammer. And they already knew that the cave is solid rock, so, like, you know, there's nothing to excavate there. But Nathan's like, well, you know what, I didn't come here to clean. I'm 12, I'm in an archaeology club. So he takes the hammer out and he starts smashing the floor with all his might and main. Now, can you imagine if the archaeologist saw that? Well, little Nathan, ultra-annoying Nathan, smashing the floor with the hammer, I don't know why, opens up an Aladdin's cave of archaeological treasures. That's all I'll tell you for now. The details are in the book. But I mean, these are three stories of the greatest archaeological finds in biblical history by three annoying, unruly boys. (laughs) Kind of makes you think. Um... So all this stuff is nuts, but to me what's nuts is that most of us don't know this stuff, that the Bible corroborates history. 
I mean that archaeology corroborates the Bible as history over and over and over and over to the point where if you're a skeptic and you read it, you'd be like, this is interesting. It's hard for me to be an atheist. It's hard for me to dis- I mean, you know, you, you know, you can't prove somebody uh, into the kingdom of heaven. But it's important that we deal with facts, and this is beautiful. And the final thing I'll say is that the two, at the end of the book, I deal with atheism, and I say that the two most famous atheists of the 20th century, Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, right? I, did, I haven't mentioned this in this service, have I? This is what happens when you speak more than once. These are the two people that took atheism seriously, not like the new atheists, Hitchens and Dawkins, who think it's great that God doesn't exist. That, that bespeaks tremendous uh, adolescence and shallowness and intellectual dishonesty. The ones who took it seriously, Camus and Sartre, they saw the bleakness of atheism, a world without God. If this is real, which they thought it was, they said, we're not happy about this. This is dark. This means there's no meaning. There's no love, there's no beauty, there's no transcendence. If you really understand it, both of these giants whose books are still being read in every college in this crazy country, both of them at the end of their life, and nobody seems to know this, Camus killed in a car crash at 47, uh, Sartre dies about 1980, both of them independently came to faith in God. That's a headline. That's crazy. But because of the narrative, and again, we see this today with the COVID, with the crazy, but this has been going on for decades and decades. People just kind of either didn't know it or if they heard about it, they ignored it or whatever. Well, I'm here to tell you, the Lord has determined that we're supposed to know some of these things now. And I think it's because we're going through dark times and he wants to give us some delicious hope and facts that are so clear that they're mind-blowing, that if you, the only thing you can do, since I told Massimo I was going to talk about Galileo, hey, Massimo, shame on you for not showing up here. I'm telling you right now. No, we're going to send this to to, to Massimo, and maybe we'll get a plate of cookies out of it or something. You'll feel guilty, you know? But I'm not kidding. Galileo tried to get the people that disagreed with him who were really more than being church people, they were Aristotelians, okay? It's a whole other story. Um, But he tried to get them to look through the telescope and said, like, look, don't take my word for it. Look through the telescope. You can see for yourself. They didn't want to look through the telescope. They didn't want to know. A lot of us have bought into a narrative. Whatever you are, whatever you believe, is it true? Are you afraid of the evidence? Are you afraid to look through the telescope? I mean, there are people who will give my book one star on Amazon without reading it just because it's just the whole idea of it ticks them off. Are you thinking with your brain? Do you have the courage to look at the evidence? Are you afraid of the facts? Folks, at the end of the day, what it boils down to is this. The God that we talk about from Scripture is infinitely more amazing than we realize. We say, oh, he's an awesome God. Hallelujah, he's an awesome God. He's going to help me make my car payment. Praise God, praise God. Yeah, He's that God, but he's even more amazing than that. He created the universe on a level of such astonishing calibration that the more you know about it, the more your heart stops for fear. Who is this God? This is scary. He's almost too scary to believe in. Who is he? And then you realize that God knows your name. The God who spoke the universe 
into existence, knows your name, and literally died on the cross because he wants to have a personal relationship with you. He doesn't want you to believe in him like I believe he exists. Because, by the way, here's the bad news. The devil also believes he exists. We're not talking about believing he exists intellectually. We're talking about putting your trust in him and knowing that he desires to have a personal relationship with you. He wants you to be born again. He wants you to give him your heart and your life. So a lot of people might say, okay, I believe God exists. That's, that's nice, but that's not what God is looking for. God says, I want a personal relationship with you. I want you to trust me so that if I ask you to do something and you know that the Bible says live this way and not this way, you will do it because you know how much I love you, you know who I am, and you know that you can never outgive me. Whatever sacrifice you think you're making, it's nothing compared to the sacrifice I made for you and will continue making for you. Now, that's what God's interested in. And so he gives us this evidence, I think, to blow our minds so that we at least finally go like, okay, Lord, uncle, I get it. You're God. You're not Zeus. You're not Ganesh. You are the God that invented the universe, and I'm scared even thinking about it. But then I find out you're my friend. You love me. You want to be my friend, but you won't force your friendship on me. You're inviting me to invite you into my heart. Folks, that's what I call good news. Let me close with a prayer. Father God, <laughs> Father God, we love you and we praise you. And we ask you, Father, by the power of your spirit to speak to every heart listening online, every heart here, Lord, what is it that we are holding back from you? Where are we disobeying you? Are we disobeying you in our thoughts? Are we disobeying you in our sexuality? Are we disobeying you with our finances? Father, help us to believe in you with every atom in our being so that we can live the lives that you desire for us to live so that we could be with you in eternity forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.